Hello, I'm Matt, and this is Ghostthropology. The show will feature ghost folklore, which includes both well-known stories and small personal encounters, all ultimately unverifiable, but all presented by people as true. I will tell you the story, after which I will discuss the elements of the story that I think are particularly interesting. While I don't know when, where, or how you were listening to this, I hope it's dark outside, as that is the best time for ghost stories. This is a break from a normal ghost anthropology episode in that I don't have a story that I'm going to tell. However, I do have a guest on the show, ethnographer, anthropologist, Michelle Hanks. Well, good afternoon. Hi, it's nice to finally meet you, I guess, sort of in person or in Zoom person. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm very grateful that you were willing to do this. I read your book several years back and I really enjoyed it. And so once I started doing this podcast, I thought, well, I need to see if I can get this person to show up. So no, thank you for asking me. I always love talking about ghosts. I mean, it's my favorite topic. So Michelle, would you please introduce yourself? Hi, um, my name is Michelle Hanks. I'm a cultural anthropologist. I finished my PhD in cultural anthropology in 2011. My work focuses on um, paranormal investigators, ghost hunt and ghost hunters, and ghost tourism in England. I did field work there on and off between 2006 and 2015. Most of my work looked at paranormal investigators. A smaller part of it looked at ghost tourism. Um, and yeah, I love talking about anything ghostly. So yeah, I'm excited. I noticed that you made a distinction between ghost tourists and paranormal investigators, but in your book, Haunted Heritage, you do tend to lump them together. How did you become interested in that topic? There are sort of two ways I became interested, one more personal and one more scholarly. I'm a cultural anthropologist, and the thing that I'm most interested in is knowledge. I'm interested in expert communities. I'm interested in contestations of science. Um, and so when I was thinking about, like, what do I want to do for my dissertation? Obviously, I was looking for a topic that combined all of those things. And on a personal side, I've always liked spooky things. Like I've always liked ghost things. I've always, yeah, like my birthday is Halloween. And I think that had like a weird impact in my life where, you know, anything ghostly, any ghost story, I'm, I've always been a big fan. Like, so I started graduate school in 2004. And at the time it was like the very early days of this resurgence of paranormal investigating, paranormal media. Um, and I was really fascinated by what was going on and how it was sort of shaping and becoming a tourist factor as well. So, yeah, you know, my birthday is right around Thanksgiving and I like eating. So, you know, it all makes sense. When you began your research, which if I understand correctly from your book, you did most of your field work uh, between 2008 and 2009. When you began, what preconceptions regarding uh, paranormal investigators did you walk in with? And were those challenged, reinforced? How did that change as you were doing your work? Yeah, so... I, I think the biggest one, um, I went into the, the field, um, you know, in like you're a novice ethnographer, you've got your interview guide, you take it very seriously, or I did at least. And one of my very first questions was, do you believe in ghosts? And that felt like a really simple question to me. Like that felt like super self-evident, like, okay, yeah, it'll be a great opening question. We'll talk about it. It'll be great. When I would talk to people um, with anything, with any kind of deeper level of engagement with ghosts, they would get so frustrated with me with that question. They'd be like, what do you mean by belief? Okay, let's break down belief. Do I believe in this? Is, is a ghost something I should be able to believe in? And what do you mean by ghost? Like, what is a ghost? 
So one of the things I came to really quickly realize is that, and like this is probably self-evident, but like belief is really complicated and people's relationship to ghosts isn't always necessarily best defined by belief. There are other ways of engaging where people, people can pursue them their whole lives and never like quote unquote believe in them, never have confidence they exist. So I think one thing, I think I assumed the community was a little bit simpler than they were, than it was. And yeah, like people have these really, really complicated relationships to evidence and knowledge and like how you come to understand a ghost. So yeah, that I think was a big, big misconception I had. In your book, one of the things that you discuss is sort of different tiers of ghost tourism. You've got kind of at the lowest entry level tier being the ghost walk. And you could probably, you don't talk about it in your book, but you could probably arguably say things like teenage legend tripping is even more entry level than that. But it goes up through, um, you know, commercial ghost hunts to paranormal investigation groups. And at each of those points, you discuss how the concept of what a ghost is, is different for people involved in each of those different levels, but also that their engagement with what they're doing and whether or not the idea of do they believe in ghosts or not makes different degrees of sense at each level. Could you uh, get into that a little bit? Sure. So like you said, there is this great range of kinds of ghost tourism. And if you think about like a ghost walk, right, especially a historically oriented ghost walk. And when I started my field work, that was kind of the predominant model. I know nowadays, like I, there are so many more complicated ones where they do ghost walks, but it's much more evidentiary based, but that kind of came after my research on that ended. But yeah, like if you go on one of those historical ghost walks, there's a really simple understanding of a ghost, right? It's someone who lived and died in the past. And if you talk about that person, you can kind of tell an interesting story about dark history. And in moments like that, questions of belief kind of don't matter, right? Like it's the the guides don't engage them a ton. I don't think most of the tourists are primarily, that's not primarily what they're there for. A lot of them are like, oh yeah, I want to do a fun walk through the city center. I like dark history. Um, That's much more what's at stake. But then if you get to sort of more complicated forms of, not more complicated. Perhaps more involved. Yeah, exactly. More involved forms. It becomes a lot more complicated. So even if you look at like commercial ghost hunts, right? Events where people pay maybe a hundred pounds to go with a company to a haunted place with the ostensible goal of encountering a ghost or amassing evidence of the ghost. In those cases, right? People's understanding of what counts as a ghost gets really complicated. Is it a sensation on your body? Like, is that going to be evidence of a ghost? Um, Is that going to be enough? Do you want to see a ghost move a mirror? Like the the stakes of evidence, they change. And the notions of what a ghost is capable of doing start to change, right? Like in the stories on on haunted tours, it's very much like, oh yes, ghost X lived and died in the 1500s. This was his life. This is, it's it's very fact-based. When you get into the commercial ghost hunts, ghosts become a lot more fragmented. They can sometimes, you know, like sometimes they're in your, they're sending thoughts to your head. Sometimes they're pushing on you. Like they become less full people almost. And even more so once you get into um, paranormal investigating, like actual paranormal investigating amateurs who go out and do this on their own. For them, it's incredibly complicated, right? The groups I worked with obsess almost over like, okay, is this in my head? Is this outside in the world, where am I locating a ghost? For them, that's a really important, hard to pin down question. So yeah, like you can kind of see the way everyone talks about ghosts, but what they mean is really different. The same thing is true of belief. I think a lot of people on ghost, ghost walks are happy to say, oh, I believe, I don't believe. It's like a simple thing. And if you read Abby Day, um, she's an English anthropologist who mostly writes about re- like religion in England. She's done some work with um, belief in ghosts and she's found sort of similar things. Like there are kind of gradations of belief. 
So for them, it's simple. For people who go into the kind of commercial, like the ones who are spending 100 pounds for these experiences, they want to believe. They want to believe. But belief for them needs to be, there needs to be some evidence. Like they can't just decide one morning that they believe in ghosts. That's, that feels maybe like a little irrational to them. So one of the things they're hoping for on these, these commercial events is to sort of have an experience, to have a moment that can convince them, that can make them say, okay, I do believe in ghosts. And then finally, with the kind of amateur paranormal investigators, it's, yeah, they, they critique the very notion of belief. Um, and I talk less about that in um, the book, but for them, belief is almost irrational. Like they worry a lot about it. They, they say, they would say things like, I don't want to believe, I want to know, right? I don't have to believe in electricity. Why should I have to believe in ghosts? Like I want the same kind of proof, which is elusive for them. They are the group that's hardest to sort of satisfy the evidentiary demands of. So given that you do have these different sort of goals in mind, you know, hearing a creepy story, knowing whether or not you already believe versus looking for evidence of belief versus what is belief anyway, is there an escalation from people who would participate in ghost walks up to paranormal investigators or do these tend to be very different paths altogether? I think they tend to be pretty different. I think there can be escalation. Absolutely there can be. Many of the people who became, who I knew as paranormal investigators had always sort of, they would characterize themselves as always having had like an interest in spooky things. So like if they were in a different city, they might happily, when they were younger, go on a ghost walk. And, you know, they might happily now go on a ghost walk because they love ghost stories. But I think in some ways they're the minority. I think a lot of people who go on ghost walks have like a, a less complicated relationship with ghosts. They think they're fun. They, they either believe in them or they don't believe in them. They don't have this drive to have a long, complicated relationship with ghosts the way some of the other tourist groups do, right? Like it's, it's kind of simple. They're either, I believe or I don't believe. Either one is okay for them. So you don't see a ton of, in my experience, escalation. That was something I was very curious about as I read the book. And this is a little late in the interview to say this. However, I've got to say, I really enjoyed this book a lot. I actually bought my first copy at a silent auction uh, to support the Society for California Archaeology. Oh my goodness. It was one of the prizes. And I thought, well, of course I'm buying that. And uh, then it went missing. I ended up buying a second copy so that I could prepare for this. And then this week, one of my coworkers said, oh, hey, I still have a copy of that book you let me. (laughs) Oh my goodness. But one of the things that I really appreciated about this book is a lot of social sciences work, and you know this, but for the audience, a lot of social sciences academic work is heavy on jargon and can be very dense and damn near impenetrable to anybody who doesn't have the training. And while your book is definitely geared towards an academic audience and you do have to rely on a lot of uh, the terminology that's really current in um, the social sciences, you do a pretty good job of explaining it. So you're not left baffled as to what you're talking about. And I do think this book, while it would be some work for a member of the general public to get through, it's accessible. And I think that they could read it. And I think they'd get a lot out of it because there are a lot of assumptions we make about how other people view the supernatural that you really get to the heart of in here. And I think you make a pretty compelling case that it's not nearly as simple as we tend to make it out to be. One of the things that you discuss that I found really interesting, there's a few threads in this book that I think are worth discussing, but one that I wanted to bring up really quickly is the idea of the ghost hunt 
as a form of pilgrimage or a pilgrimage-like experience, at least. And when I first read that, you know, my first thought was, sure it is. And then I read your description and I thought, oh yeah, she's right. It is. (laughs) So could you please explain that uh, a bit? Sure. I think when people think people in the popular, like people out there who aren't anthropologists think about pilgrimage, they think in terms of place a great deal. And of course that makes sense. Pilgrimages are, Mm -hmm. you know, sacred or secular travels to a place, but I think place figures really heavily like, okay, it's a pilgrimage site because it's associated with this church or this faith. Like people think in those terms, like low dark in Ireland, like it's, it's a pilgrimage because it's a sacred site. Um, And they think less about the experience of, of the person doing the traveling. Um, I think one of the things in the anthropology of pilgrimage and travel with is it's, there's been really good work to kind of think about how pilgrimage affects the person doing it. I really like Edith Turner's description of pilgrimage. She defines it um, in terms of like a trip that allows for you to have some kind of transformation. You go to be transformed and you are transformed. And you know, that what's great about that is it can encompass spiritual or religious pilgrimages, which of course are real and important, but it also has the potential to include things like, I don't know, going to Abbey Road if you're a big Beatles fan. Like that can absolutely be an incredibly meaningful thing. How many people go to Graceland? Oh my gosh, yeah, that's a perfect example, right? Or, or for that matter, I was reading recently about how a lot of people now, and I forget which train, one of the train stations in London go there because it features in the Harry Potter books, but it's a very important thing for them to be able to go there. Absolutely. And it's, that's an especially charming one. Like I, my, my field work was based in York in England and the Northeast. And to get there from London, because when I was starting it, at least you couldn't get easy flights into the North from my area of the U.S., so I, I travel through King's Cross and that's where the Harry Potter platform is. And it's so great. You see all these kids in their Harry Potter outfits and, you know, it's so obviously meaningful. It's so wonderful. I can't remember the name of the station, even though I just read the first book to my daughter recently. That, yeah, all, all the Harry Potter fans are turning off their iPods right now. <laughs> King, King's Cross, King's Cross. <laughs> so yeah, though, to go back to Ghost Hunters. Yeah, for them, the site isn't as, it's not as set, right? It could be a lot of different sites. The site, there's a lot of flexibility. But what they really want is a transformative experience. They want to go to a place and they want it in that they want to go in as a non-believer or as maybe like a, a mild skeptic. And they want to come out with greater confidence in the reality of ghosts. Um, so yeah, that to my mind fits a pilgrimage really nicely. And I mean, there are so many elements of the ghost hunt too, right? Where there are elements of liminality, right? Like you're in these places that are super public, but you're doing it in a kind of small private context places that are typically illuminated, you're in there in the dark, right? There are all of these inversions that are kind of part and parcel of liminality that go along with ghost hunts that kind of set you up to have a transformative experience. It's part of, I think, what makes them both really meaningful to the people, like people, because for a lot of the tourists who, or a lot of the the ghost hunters who are doing this, it's a really big financial investment, like a hundred pounds to spend a night in a haunted place. That's not nothing. Mm -hmm. Well, especially you mentioned in the book that most of the uh, ghost hunters you worked with were working class. So a hundred pounds, which comes out to, I think around about $165 currently. That's a chunk of change. If you are in a more precarious financial position, which a lot of these people seem to be. Absolutely. So again, right. Like that points to the stakes. They really want something out of this. They want this this, yeah, like this affirmation that ghosts are real or that there's life after death. Like, like those are things that they hope that this experience can provide it for them. Did you see people actually getting that uh, sense of transformation or did they tend to be more frustrated by that? It depends on who we're talking about. 
Okay. For the parent, the people like so the highest, like the highest end. I, we, I wish I could get out of this hierarchical language with it. Right. For amateur researchers, for folks who are the most invested, the most invested in terms of time. Yeah. Like the ones okay. who form teams, the ones who form groups, they are wildly frustrated by it. Like they'll go to these, they'll go to a ghost hunt or a paranormal investigation. They'll spend the night amassing evidence. And in the moment, they're so optimistic about it, right? Like they're so optimistic. I remember being in the field. It was, I think my first year still. And like, I had, I had a, a friend and his team was out doing an investigation and I couldn't go on it because I was at another event that night. And he texted me in the middle of the night to be like, oh my God, I just saw a ghost. You've got to come over tomorrow. We've got to talk about this. And I was so excited. I was like, okay, I'm going to find out what it takes to be, to, to be convinced that ghosts are real. I'm, I'm, this is going to be amazing. And I get there and I'm like, okay, tell me about it. What, what convinced you? It's like, actually, I don't know. I don't know. In the moment I was sure, but now I don't know. Um, so basically the whole conversation ended up being him kind of critiquing what he thought was a ghost in the moment. Um, and I found that a lot with the most invested community. Like they're, the threshold for what counts as good evidence for them is incredibly high. And in my more recent work, I kind of try to tease apart why that's the case, how that works, what drives that. So for them, yeah, like nothing's ever really convincing. For people who are more casual about it, who might go on, you know, two ghost hunts a year, for them, oftentimes it is convincing. Like they're sort of like, okay, yeah, I, the medium child, my grandfather, great. I, that's, that's evidence. I, I believe in it now. What a great experience. Or um, yeah, I, I got a picture of, you know, a blurry thing they're a little more willing to believe what they're seeing or what they're experiencing is real. They, pro- they problematize it less. One of the things that I found really quite interesting in reading about this is there's a stereotype in our culture about the paranormal investigator. And I think that the stereotype's probably largely based on shows like Ghost Hunters and Most Haunted and so on. And if you read things written, for example, by people like Michael Shermer or um, Ben Radford and so on, you know, they, they tend to focus on that as being the norm and they'll critique that from what you wrote, at least in New York, it seemed like that wasn't really the norm that most of these people tend to actually be highly critical of those types of media, even though that type of media might be what brought them into it. Yeah. I mean, for the folks I worked with, Most Haunted was such a flashpoint, right? And I know that like, Most Haunted at this point is kind of a dated reference since it's been off the air for so long, but it was it was huge. And it kind of pioneered, like, or re-pioneered that genre of paranormal reality TV. So loads of the people I worked with, I mean, they all got involved for different reasons. It's it's hard to generalize, but for many of them, Most, Most Haunted played a role in their journey. For some, it, like, it catalyzed an existing interest and they were like, wow, I can go out and do this. But what's interesting is most of them become really involved in critiquing Most Haunted and critiquing paranormal reality TV. People like kind of dismiss it like, oh, so-and-so, you know, she goes on these, but she only wants the most haunted experience. It's kind of like a sign of being like a little simple, a little less critical. It's kind of almost like anti-fandom for most haunted at that at this point, right? Like, like if like, I remember once it was a slow night and in, in a, in a paranormal investigation with the most invested people. And, you know, like it was a slow night. So people get kind of goofy. And one person just started pretending to be Derek Akora. Like that, like there was a good 30 minute period where he was just like, oh, I'm Derek Akora. Oh, like, so yeah, it, it's to go back to your original question. Um, I think a lot of the stereotypes people have are based on this kind of paranormal reality TV. And it, it doesn't represent the reality of paranormal investigation as well as some people think it does. It doesn't represent the complexity. You, you document a pretty strong current of self-criticism in this, which I found really interesting. Uh, and I, I'll say, I, I walked away from reading this book with a much 
greater degree of respect for people involved in uh, the paranormal investigation that I had going in, because there does seem to be an impulse to try to get away from their own biases and to try to not fall for dubious claims or bad evidence, which you know I respect that. But at the same time, as I was reading it there, you were talking about how um, they don't have really an ability to draw any firm conclusions. And what I kept thinking was these people need theory, you know? And so for the audience, you know, we have the common idea that theory, you know, we all mislearn science in elementary school and they have a theory and then they test that theory. Now theory is actually like the whole body of observations, ideas, concepts, data, that form the framework for developing any uh, conclusions based on observations you make. You test a hypothesis, theory is your general framework that all of your research fits into. But what struck me as I was reading this is that they don't seem to have a clear theoretical framework onto which to hang anything. And so their data is going to just keep falling through the cracks. Does that seem like a reasonable conclusion to you or? Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, like we're talking really at this point about paranormal investigators, the amateurs who are super invested. Yes. Not, not people who go on a night, one night ghost hunt or people who go on ghost walks, very different animals. There. Absolutely. Right. They have an easier, their position is so easy. They can be happy. They can believe a ghost or not believe a ghost. They're not engaged in this kind of like obsessive sort of self-doubt, self-critique that you're mentioning. Yeah. And I think you're right about theory. So like, like take, for example, electromagnetic energy, right? If you go on, if you're talking to amateur investigators, one of the things everyone agrees is it has something to do with the paranormal, right? And as a result, it makes sense to them to measure it. That's why EMF readers are so ubiquitous, like everywhere on ghost hunts, right? Like everyone's got them. People even have different names for them. So everyone agrees that measuring electromagnetic energy is important. But what get, where, the, where they fall into the cracks, like you say, is like they can't agree on what it means. So for some folks, like they, they read parapsychology, they read, um, you know, the proceedings of the Society for Psychical Research, like they, they, they go into those more expert realms a little bit. And for them, they start looking at research on like geology and electromagnetic energy and say, oh, okay, people have found that electromagnetic energy can cause hallucinations. Um, it can make you have the experience of a haunting, even if there's no, you know, evidence that there's a haunting. So for them, it becomes almost like if you're, if there's a high level of electromagnetic energy, it means yeah, if you're experiencing a ghost, it's probably just the wiring. However, on the same the same group, the same night, other people will take electromagnetic energy to mean something really different, right? Because of that word energy. With the word energy, there's the slippage and it becomes like, okay, it's about our energy. You have a good energy. I have a good energy. It becomes kind of like code for soul or spirit almost. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if you're measuring energy, you're measuring a ghost, you're measuring a spirit. Um, and these two examples, like these are only two of the many, many, many theories that go around with electromagnetic energy, but they, they're completely contradictory and there's really no way to reconcile them. So even the folks who kind of ascribe to sort of the more scientific interpretation of electromagnetic energy, like they're like, but, but what if they're right? What if it is like, what if I'm misunderstanding it? So yeah, like there isn't a coherent theory of what does or doesn't cause it. it, it yeah, it, it leads to extreme doubt, extreme self-criticism. And people get really upset about it, right? Like I have so many memories of going on a ghost hunt and people doing all of this cool, interesting work the night of. And then the next day they're like, oh, we really messed up. We did a bad job. Like there's like, like the people would get upset about it and kind of mad at each other. Like, I don't know why so-and-so went off and doing like why that wasn't related to what I thought. Like it's, yeah, like there's a degree of frustration that I think is 
you don't see it very frequently in public depictions of um, ghost hunting, like that level of sort of criticism, self-doubt. And you also, like you say, like for them, it's that there isn't a coherent theory. Like there isn't like, so they're, they're hypothesis. They're trying to build hypotheses, but they, they don't really, they can't. They don't have a foundation on which to build. Right. Yeah. One of the things you also observed, and I wonder if it's connected to this is that a lot of the paranormal investigators that you worked with, they had this notion that they needed to be seen as being very serious and very sober and not just people who were doing something that was exciting and fun, which struck me as really interesting because, you know, I'm an archaeologist uh, primarily, and we don't make that distinction. You know, we have a lot of fun doing field work and it can be very exciting. It doesn't change the fact that our findings will still stand or fall based on the quality of our work. And I wonder if this lack of a foundation to build on might be part of the reason why they may feel that need to be seen as more serious and sober, whereas people who are in established research fields don't have to worry about that because we've got a firm backing to fall back on. I think that's part of it. Absolutely. I think also maybe they're so aware of critics, like they're so aware that they're, they're participating in something that people consider illegitimate. And I think that that contribute that creates this kind of anxiety over it. Like, I don't want people to think I'm like Derek Cora. I don't want, you know, I think it's, I think those two things kind of come into play together. Your description of people pretending to be Derek Cora. Derek Cora, for anybody unaware, was one of the hosts and a medium on the show Most Haunted. Your description there reminded me of a field crew I worked with years ago where while we're out in the field, we all began imitating ancient aliens um, <laughs> guests and describing what the various artifacts we were finding meant. But we can be perfectly open about the fact that we we're doing that because we're all actual archaeologists doing actual archaeological work and we've got that to fall back on. It's a clearer boundary, right? Like the distinction yeah. between, you know, an, an archaeologist and like an ancient alien enthusiast, right? Like it is a clear, mm -hmm. sharp dichotomy. For the, the ghost hunters, the paranormal investigators, those are all really murky boundaries that they don't always understand. And like other people certainly don't understand them. So boundary work is a really big thing that you see them doing. And like, I'm not new in saying this, like David has studied US paranormal cultures in the nineties and he wrote a quite, his book is so good for talking about this, but you see the same phenomena with the ghost hunter the paranormal investigators I worked with. There are so many people they need to kind of differentiate themselves from. They're not um, spiritualists, right? Spir many people in England are practicing. Spiritualism is a religion. It's still alive and well. Oh, yeah. On the one hand, they're defining themselves against that. On the other hand, they're defining themselves against religious people. They're defining themselves against parapsychologists and orthodox science who they think are too closed-minded to get the right information. Like, there's there's so much boundary work because it's such an insecure, such a, like an amateur pseudoscience almost. So, yeah, there's there's kind of a constant anxiety over those boundaries. I mean, every every field has some degree of it, right? Like we, everyone does this. To, it's like, I think, kind of a, almost universal thing people do. With them, because it's it's such a complicated arena, right? It's at this ne nexus of sort of irrationality, rationality, um, faith, science. Like it has, it has, they have so many boundaries they have to kind of constantly work and remind themselves and remind others of. Yeah, it's a lot for them. Uh, the podcast listeners thought they were getting ghost stories. We're giving them an anthropology <laughs> lecture. Ah. Oh, gosh. Which is exactly what I intended to do here. So that's great. <laughs> that's good because I'm actually really bad at telling ghost stories. So I'm well, glad that's fine. That you that's fine. No, this again, I wanted to speak with you specifically because 
I wanted an anthropological discussion. I thought that that's something that's actually missing in most discussions uh, regarding paranormal in general, which kind of actually brings me to something that I found myself thinking a lot as I read your book. You discuss how not necessarily belief in ghosts, although certainly belief, but also hunting for belief in ghosts is connected in many ways to, for lack of a better term, historical revisionism. And also how it's connected to certain political currents, whether or not the people who engage in it are politically active. And through both of those, it ends up being tied into people's sense of identity. You talk quite a bit in this book about how a lot of the people that you worked with, because they were themselves working class, they had a perception, whether it was correct or not that historians and archaeologists are focused on elites, which as a hunter-gatherer archaeologist, you know, I take offense at that. But, you know, the idea is certainly out there. It's one I've encountered frequently when I talk to people. But a lot of the criticism of any sort of paranormal belief or investigation seems to be focused on the idea of if you just give people the right information, then they'll come around and they'll believe correctly the way that, you know, we, the critics, do. But if it's really tied in with people's identity in this way, it seems like that's really a losing approach if your goal is to try to persuade people to change their views. And I'm just curious as to whether or not you had any thoughts on, is there value in attempting to criticize this? And if there is, what are better ways to do it? Yeah, I that's such a good question and such a complicated question. I can feel myself gearing up to ramble. No, that's fine. Go <laughs> ahead and ramble away. So I think there are two things, right? There are two kinds of ways to think about criticizing paranormal investigators. One focuses on the idea that believing in ghosts is irrational. I have little time or energy for that critique. People believe in all kinds of things, right? Like this idea that we're becoming more rational, more secular all the time. Like there's so much proof in the world to counteract that, right? So much proof. That isn't the case. Like We, people... we live in a world where QAnon is an active political force. I... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so like for me, when you when people get upset that people believe in ghosts or they want to they wanna believe in ghosts, that I, I, I kind of, I don't know what to do with that. I think that the criticism of it is more interesting almost than the belief in ghosts itself. Like, why are you troubled by the fact that people believe in ghosts? Like, what, why is that a thing that bothers you? That's my thinking on the, the first part of it. The second part, when they engage in these projects of kind of history making, there are two veins to that that I think are worth thinking about a little bit more critically, right? Because a lot of the historical narratives that are coming out of this, there's very little evidence for them. I think some of it does fall into the realm of sort of pseudo history, right? Where they're, they're conjuring these images of ghosts and they're coming to believe things about the past that are a little divorced from like what people do know about the past. And so to me, there are two things that are troubling. Sometimes I think narratives can emerge. They can do some nationalistic work, right? Like, I think it's it's interesting, right? Go on a ghost walk in England. Do you ever see ghosts of immigrant populations? Do you ever see ghosts of enslaved people who pass through England? You don't. Like, that's that's absent, right? If there are stories of conflict, it's like invading populations from Europe. It's, it's a very funny way of making history um, that has, I think, troubling political implications. The second thing that I think is troubling is, like, the implication that historians and archaeologists don't know things like that that isn't a legitimate form of knowledge. I saw this throughout my field work in different ways, like this kind of claim, oh, well, historians, what do they really know? I'm like, they know quite a lot. They have quite a lot of evidence. Like they're they're reading documents, they're doing things. Archaeologists are looking at material evidence. It's not like left open to their whims. I think that 
that part is maybe the most concerning to me, like the way in which sort of the, the doubt they have about ghosts themselves kind of comes to color how they think of all knowledge to some degree. We can't get a clear theory of ghosts. We can't pin down evidence of ghosts. So can anyone anywhere pin down evidence or thinking about anything? Yeah, they can. They can. There's knowledge in the world. So when it ends up in that kind of place of radical deconstruction almost, I worry a little bit about that. Well, you note that it has pretty clear political implications. And I'll say, I when I first read the book, I think it was shortly after it was published, I think I got it at the 2015 or 2016 SCAs. You know, either way, while we saw Brexit on the horizon, Donald Trump was still a joke. Nobody saw Bolsonaro taking power in Brazil. There's a lot of things that have changed in the world in the time since then. So when I first read it, the last couple chapters, I don't think hit me the same way they hit me this time, where you note some real reactionary trends in the way that people view the past. There seems to be a romanticization of the past and, you know, a homogenization where it's all white Britons. I'm wondering, do you think that some of this feeds into some of the kind of right-wing populist politics, or do you think it's simply a current that both of them are writing, or is it more complicated than that? I think it's a bit of both. I mean, because if you look at the history of ghosts in England, and there's such good scholarship about it, right? Like people have done such good work analyzing from everything from like the 1200s onward, right? And ghosts always are of their era, of always of their cultural milieu. They always reflect something. In this case, yeah, I think they're reflecting this kind of Gillian Evans writes about it as um, sort of like this nativist position in England, where if you're a white Briton, you feel sort of threatened by globalization, by by immigration, all of these different factors. I think I think the way the kinds of ghosts that the, some of the folks I worked with were looking, the ones they were looking for reflect that, right? Like they reflect this narrative that this kind of identity is in some, some way threatened. Yeah, I think that's part of it. And I think also, right, there's this kind of casual relationship to truth. When I was writing that, I, innocent days where Donald Trump and Brexit didn't yet seem real, right? But like, you could see the thread. You could see that this idea that the official narrative isn't totally trustworthy, like the experts aren't totally trustworthy. That was their part there. They went together, um, I think, in a way that is, yeah, troubling and definitely representative of the times. In the book, you explicitly at a couple of points make a comparison to this idea that historians and archaeologists are not trustworthy and things like the anti-vaccine movement, the um, global warming denial, pseudo-medicine, things like that. And one thing that I thought was quite interesting, you talk about how you get these groups that will develop their own sort of history of a place based on the ghosts they've encountered and that you have a wide variety based on the number of different groups that you have there. It made me think about some uh, work by sociologists I've read. It looked at belief in conspiracy theories. And what they found was that amongst people who bought into conspiracy theories, they'll usually have their favorite ones, but they can accept the existence of others. What they can't really tolerate is what they regard as the official story, which in of itself is a simplification because good luck getting two historians or archaeologists or anthropologists to agree to a lunch order, much less what really happened in the past. But it struck me that there might be a similarity there. And again, I don't know if I'm reading too much into that or if that sounds legitimate to you as somebody who's actually worked with this. Yeah, I think there is a distrust. I think there's something kind of contagious about it. Like, because it's something I saw, like I can recall one of my informants who's this great, interesting, wonderful, cool person. And, you know, like she engages in the same kind of practices everyone in my book does, right? She goes on ghost hunts, she critiques the past. 
And then at one point it turned kind of sharply for her to real conspiracy theorizing. I remember one day she sort of like, did the Holocaust happen? And I'm like, yes, it did. It was a very kind of troubling moment. I'm like, okay, this is, this is all, I see that this isn't just kind of one thing. I do think it ends up with in a situation where the, the official narrative is the one that becomes kind of untrustworthy. And it's a funny thing. Like it's, it's, it's a funny relationship to expertise. Like on the one hand, we can't trust authoritative historians. We can't trust that. On the other hand, they also want to be taken very seriously as experts. They want their expertise to count. And people would sometimes even use me as like a, a ploy to be more expert. They'd be like, oh, our team has an anthropologist. And I'm like, <laughs> what a thing to brag about. But um, Weird so flex, like, buddy. Yeah, I'm like, wow. Like on the one hand, they very much want to be seen as experts. On the other hand, they distrust almost other all other kinds of expertise. You know, when you were talking earlier about the focus on like specific classes and ethnicities in British ghost lore, it, it immediately made me think of how in the U.S. a lot of a lot of the ghost story lore in the U.S. does focus on white people, but a lot of it doesn't. You know, if you go to the South, there is a presence of slave ghosts, for example, that comes up a lot. Now that can be critiqued. There's a uh, writer by the name of Colin Dickey who points out that the ghosts of slaves always fall within certain categories and settings, which are not necessarily consistent with where these people would have been in the real past. But one thing that I've noticed, I live in California. And two very common types of ghost stories we have uh, out here are the ghosts of Chinese laborers. You know, there is this like general acknowledgement that laborers from Asia, particularly China, but also from other parts of Asia who came in the 19th century, were uh, very strongly mistreated. And I've often interpreted a lot of the ghost stories I've heard as being a kind of way to acknowledge that without flat out saying it. But another one that's coming throughout the U.S., uh, including out here where I live is the notion of a location that's, you know, built on the Indian burial ground, which I can say is almost always not true. But from what I can tell, I, I suspect that story has been around for a while, but it seemed to really pick up in the 1970s, which is around the time you got occupation of Alcatraz, the rise of the American Indian movement and so on. And I've often wondered if that was a way of kind of acknowledging the mistreatment of the native peoples of the U.S. in the past without really tangling with it in a way that would make you have to deal with it. I guess where I'm going with this is it seems like that's a very different kind of setting than what you have in England, where there is this notion that until recently, everybody was white. And I wonder if that would lead to a different sort of uh, politics around ghost hunting. It's a really, really good question. I mean, and definitely English history is different. It is a different historical narrative than the U.S. That being said, right, most of my field work took place in the north of England. Mm -hmm. There are so many historical things that have happened in the north. I mean, like in the, like, like Liverpool, right? A major hub in the transatlantic slave trade. Oh, very true. Yeah. It's uncanny how white the ghosts of England are. It's uncanny. Like Leeds, super diversity, like a center of Islam in England nothing like it's very omit it's there's there's no yeah even like on a smaller level right I'm always struck by the lack of sort of like stories of Irish ghosts in England you know colonization closer to home like there's there's very little that touches on that hmm. I know in New York like some of the ghost stories about like the invading Vikings they're weirdly charged I to my mind right like about this idea of an invading other coming and attacking a Britain there's a weird thread to it. And on the other hand, a lot of the ghost stories that do exist have two threads to them. The kind of abuse 
and mistreatment of working class people, which is a really important story to tell, right? That's a mm-hmm. really important labor story to tell. Coupled with kind of these themes of expertise, like who, who discovers them, who encounters them. So yeah, the politics of it are, they're, they're complicated, I think. They're hard to parse. There's a class critique I see in a lot of them, but at the same time, a very whitewashed class critique. I'll be honest, this book actually helped me make a little bit of sense out of some of the politics I've seen over the last uh, six or seven years in that. You make the point that there is this class critique that we typically think of as a very left-wing thing, but there's also this run towards nativism, which we typically see of this very right-wing thing. You know, ranging from Brexit to uh, Trump to Bolsonaro to um, even Modi in India, you see those same elements play out. And it was interesting to read a book about ghost hunters and see the exact same threads coming into play. I found it constantly kind of jarring. Like I, I hadn't set out to uncover that. Like, I, I mean, I was interested in the EU. Like I, I was like, mm-hmm. oh, it's interesting. People are critiquing it. But I was really unnerved by it a lot of times when I was doing field work. Like I'd be talking to people and I'm like, yeah, okay, let's critique class. That's awesome. And like, even along gender lines, people would be espousing things that are like really clearly feminist and interesting. I'm like, all right, yeah, okay, we're doing this. And then they're like, oh, okay, actually I'm not with you. Like I diverge from you in really interesting ways like the Holocaust denial example, right? Like this is a person I share so much fondness for. And, you know, like we'll talk about animal rights together. We'll talk about all of these things that are interesting, important to me politically and to her politically. But then all of a sudden it ends up in this weird conspiracy theory about the Holocaust. And I'm like, oh, looking back on it, there's this weirdly like Donald Trumpian slant to it almost. Like, it's like, oh, is there a reality? What is truth? This is like, I don't know, over 10 years ago at this point, I wasn't ready for that. I was like, what's going on here? Why are we aligned in so many ways and not in really significant ones? It, it brings to mind a number of people I know from the Bay Area you know, around San Francisco who have been shocked to find out that the alternative medicine people who they've been relying on for years are suddenly spouting QAnon stuff. And you know this is shocking to them because they always saw these people as being very left-wing, which they were for a long time. But QAnon, Donald Trump has really been effective, I think, in pulling a lot of these conspiracy theory threads and putting them into a different political setting. And if you're more invested in the either conspiracy theory or the notion that experts aren't experts, I could see somebody very easily being pulled away from what they once held as uh, their beliefs towards another area. Yeah, it's so it's so tricky. It makes me think of two different things, right? Like in, like you're talking about with the healthcare context, especially like women's health, there's great reason to critique the history of medicine as it's pertained to women. Mm-hmm. Tons of really good reasons for that. That doesn't mean none of it's real though. And like navigating that is such a complicated thing for folks. I don't know. She's a popular writer, but have you read Eula Biss? I have not, no. She writes about this so well in the context of um, immunity and vaccination. These critiques that like feminist women of a certain educational background, you know, understand and accept about medicine, how quickly they can kind of spin on their head to make people opposed to vaccination. It's, it's, yeah, it's interesting and concerning. I think about like Bruno Latour had a piece about has critique run out of steam and he sort of in it wonders about the role that anthropologists, sociologists of science, anthropologists and sociologists generally, right, who have been deconstructing things saying, yeah, of course, history is human made. Of course, it's, you know, a narrative. Have we done a serious disservice in the world? Have we given rise or enabled these kinds of criticisms? And I don't know. It's a worry. (laughs) It's something I find myself thinking about from time to time as well. And I, 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 what I would suggest if in listening to that part of the discussion, you're interested, buy the book and read the book. 
it it's interesting, especially the last couple chapters, which really get into that. Kind of changing tracks. One of the things that uh, you discuss in the book that I've been reading about from different writers is the use of mediums in ghost investigations. And two things struck me as really interesting here. One was, whereas the investigators seem to dislike doing the public ghost tours where they would get paid to fund their other work, the mediums seemed to enjoy it because the mediums became front and center. But the other thing that really struck me as interesting as I've been reading more broadly, you don't really get into this in the book, but I'm curious as to whether or not you observed it is, I think it's Mark Eaton who studies paranormal beliefs in his work identified that there's this gender divide. It's not a strict gender divide, but that generally more women become interested in being mediums, more men become interested in doing, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, ghost hunting with gadgets. And that tends to reproduce gender politics from the outside world within the uh, sphere of ghost hunting. And did you see evidence of that in England or was there a different dynamic in play? That is such a good question. His book is so great. Like I, in terms of understanding the U.S. ghost community, it is what a good book. I actually had a really different experience with gender and mediumship. And I don't know what to do with it because everything in the literature on spiritualism set me up to think women were going to be more involved with mediumship. Everything, right? If you look at the history of spiritualism, there's so much good historical writing about how spiritualism, the religion, was this really great place for the empowerment of women. And they got to have religious authority in ways that they couldn't in Christianity at the time. Like there's so much good scholarship and, you know, like Victoria Woodhull and the way in which she used mediumship. Like I was so geared, geared up to, exceed, to see that. Demographically in my work, there isn't a big gender divide in who is and is not a medium. Hmm. I don't want to look at my numbers, but I would my hunch is it's about 55% women and 45% men. Slight difference, but nothing really to be too concerned about. No, but what's interesting to me, and I've been trying to write a, a piece about this for like 10 years and I keep not doing it. So maybe <laughs> this will inspire me. Men and women seem to have slightly different mediumship styles. Men tended, when they were doing mediumship, they tended to kind of speak as themselves for the whole time. In Irving Goffman's terms, they kind of maintained a stable footing. Like, so they're talking as themselves and telling you, okay, I'm seeing a man walking towards you. I'm seeing the number seven here. Like they kind of narrate the experience a little bit differently than female mediums did, right? Where they tended, they tended to be a little bit more slippage in their consciousness, where sometimes they would speak as themselves. I'm seeing a man walking towards you. But then sometimes like they would kind of slip into either sort of possession events where they were speaking as a spirit or they were speaking to someone who wasn't the audience. So get back, get back. I need you to get back. Like that kind of thing versus there's a man approaching me. Like I want him to step away. Like interestingly, then there was a very, very strong preference for the male style over the female style of mediumship. Mm. It was taken to be a, a more rational, more believable um, in part because people when women or other mediums, like it wasn't, wasn't unique to women. Men could do this kind of more possessed style of mm -hmm. mediumship, but it was highly critiqued. People thought, oh, are they really mediums? Have they lost their mind? Like there was a very interesting kind of discourse around mental health almost in mediumship. If you go too far in your mediumship, are you reliable? Or are you, is it a sign that you have some kind of mental health problem in their terms? So for me, that's where I saw the biggest gender divide. Like women who, who had these very intense mediumistic experiences where they're maybe possessed, where there isn't a clear boundary between them and the spirit they're working with, were being kind of discounted and kind of pushed to the side and being said, okay, well, that's too dramatic. That's too crazy. Whereas the men who could do kind of a steady, like, okay, there's this and X, Y, and Z, they were a little bit more respected. 
within the zones of mediums. To me, that's where I saw the clearest gender. It's hard not to hear, why are you so emotional? <laughs> it really is. What's interesting about that is because of my own background, the possession narratives I'm most familiar with would be native uh, Californian. And there, although there were women who were engaged, it was very often men. Um, and I'm thinking about like uh, the anthropologist Leslie Spear, who did work on the Klamath Shamans dance, for example. Or um, there's a uh, in Santa Barbara mission in the 1820s, there was a young woman who started claiming to become possessed by the spirits and was essentially spouting anti-Spanish rhetoric. And a lot of the anthropologists who reported on this, looking at the, um, this is all based on written accounts from the Spanish, but they all assumed that men had set her up to it. But what you're finding is that in this contemporary setting in England, these things, which either weren't gendered or maybe were gendered male in these other settings are now gendered female. It's interesting. I thought of it a lot in terms of like senses of self. Like I was really intrigued by what kind of sense of self was being preferred that what I'm calling the men's style, right? Where it's like a clear, I'm going to describe what I'm seeing and we're just going to assess it together. Like there's this clear boundary between the medium and the world of spirits. The spirit can't get in almost like it's like a hard boundary. Whereas in the more female style, the more feminine style, the boundary collapses really quickly. And that's the thing, I was intrigued by why people were troubled by that. Why one style was tied to sort of a rational way of approaching spirits and the other falls prey to all of the things people find suspicious, right? Like, is it, is it just in your head? Are you just imagining it? To me, like the, the implications for rationality were super interesting. Years ago, uh, when I was in my early 20s, I had a friend who was a psychologist and most of his friends were psychologists. So I found myself talking to psychologists very often. And they all insisted that you know, the only explanation for shamanic practices was mental illness. But of course, there's been a lot of work on that. A lot of anthropologists have worked with psychologists and psychiatrists and found a very mixed bag of data. But the general consensus is that there's probably not mental illness involved. Mm -hmm. But it seems interesting that when you've got the person who is having the spiritual experience coming from a society that would assume that's insanity, that they themselves may get targeted with that. Yeah, because like, of course, right, like in contemporary, the North Atlantic world, there are tons of faiths that absolutely have possession or have mm -hmm. encounters, really embodied encounters with incorporeal others. Like I'm thinking of, um, Tanya Lerman's work on evangelical Christians in the U.S. who have like these. Oh, yeah. And what's so interesting to me in that work versus the kind of experiences the mediums I write about in England had, there's a clear, to go back to your point about theory, there's a clear theory, in this case, theology, that explains how and why Jesus could be talking to you in this intimate way or why Jesus is speaking through you. Like there's a clear explanation. In the case with my mediums, there isn't that clear, my mediums, the, the mediums. <laughs> yeah, there's not, there's not that clear explanation. Like, so that's why this ambiguity kind of comes mm -hmm. in. Like, is it mental health or is it actually a ghost? Like, is it someone who wants attention? That was the other thing. Oh, they're narcissistic. They want attention. And again, it's hard to not see that through a very kind of gender lens, but yeah, but like with the lack of theory, the lack of like, okay, ghosts can do this because there isn't that clear kind of theory epistemology of ghosts. It makes it all so much more suspicious. Like it makes it all open in these ways to critiques and ways, you know, people channeling Jesus aren't as open to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or at least not from within their own communities. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Right. From outside. Definitely. But this is like internal. Like it's like your best friend being like, oh, she likes attention, doesn't she? Yeah. It's a very different experience, I think. You have an account in your book of a, a medium who is uh, talking about encountering John Sage. 
I think one of your informants referred to them as the most Googleable ghost at the location and how this plays into this thing where people want to find the new thing. They don't want to find the old thing, uh, even though the old thing, like in this case, it looks like John Sage may very well not have been a real person, but if somebody did start channeling a real person and was able to do it in a way that was convincing, it seems like that would actually support the claim that they're seeing something real. But it sounded like there was this desire to not see that, to see something else completely different. Yeah. I mean, mediums are an interesting group, right? Because I think in some ways they're the, they're, they're fine with themselves, right? They're, mm-hmm. they, they're not as worried about like, you know, proving things that they, they're okay with themselves, but they have a real uphill battle trying to convince anyone in the paranormal investigating community of their legitimacy. It's like a no-win situation for them. If you, if you come up with something that's already known, did you Google it? If you come up with somebody new, you, you could just be making it up. The kind of trust that you would need to have for a medium it, it seems kind of unmanageable for the paranormal investigators. They want, they have this fantasy of technology or fantasy of evidence that's so clear cut. And with mediums, it, it's it's not, it's never going to be. You'd see mediums come up with things and people are like, ah, there's no way to know, right? Because, like, you know, if, if you're a medium coming up with a new name, a new place, whatever, coupled with the idea that the historical record is hard to access and not necessarily trustworthy, it, there's like little hope of verification in a way that people... Like on Most Haunted, like they loved the idea, like, okay, we're going to take a medium and we're going to blindfold him or her. They're going to go to a site and they're going to tell us things about it. And the idea is that you're somehow, it's more trustworthy because they didn't know in advance and you can prove with the historical record that what they're getting is correct. For the amateur paranormal investigators I work with, that is that that level of trust, that level of kind of confirmation is kind of impossible for them. Well, it made me think to an extent also about how for historians, archaeologists, and other people who work with the human past, there's this desire to find the new thing or the disruptive thing. And people aren't as keen to publish if what they find confirms what other people have already found. Although it seems like some of this is different in terms of the impulse. It has some of the same sorts of implications where you're not necessarily hearing about the things that reinforce what we can confirm happened. I don't know that there's much meat to that, but it's just one of the things that hit me as I read that passage. No, I think that's probably a really interesting, important critique of how we approach knowledge. What do we value with knowledge? I know in anthropology and cultural anthropology, we worry a ton like theory versus ethnography. Like, you know, like if you want to publish something, there's got to be some kind of theoretical insight that's new. You've got to contribute something. Mm -hmm. But sometimes I wonder if we devalue just, you know, telling a good story about a community, amassing to the way we, to how, what we know about folks. That's important too. When I was a grad student, we were looking to hire a new ethnographer. A number of people came in and one of them actually was focused on uh, Latino communities in the U.S. and looking at both the rhetoric around immigration and the reality and how that affected the lives of immigrant communities. And I remember that they decided to hire another guy who, frankly, his talk put me to sleep. He was rambling on about people's life projects and they offered him the job. And I remember that one of the reasons that was given was, well, he's at the cutting edge of theory, whereas the other guy is just doing practical work. And I just kept thinking, you know, there's value to practical work, guys. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's that sounds exactly 
par for the course for anthropology to me. Like I have no trouble believing that. And yeah, I think it's a shame. I think telling cool, interesting stories about people in the past or the present, that's important, right? In addition to building any kind of big theory, but like just to me, at least as a person who tries to write about other people, that matters. So one of the things that I thought was interesting, we were talking about in the book, the ghost walk participants for whom, you know, they believe or don't believe, but they're going out there hearing stories. And then you have the commercial ghost hunt participants who are going out and looking for reasons to believe, and they may or may not find it depending on you know who they are and what happens. And that seemed to me to be very much in the vein of kind of re-enchanting the landscape. And you know, for the listeners, there's this idea in social sciences of the disenchanted landscape. It's the idea that as we begin to develop more physical and mechanistic explanations for the world, the world seemed less magical. And so a lot of people will engage in activities or partake in beliefs that add the magic back in. And they don't necessarily need to be mystical. I mean, I, I'm a geocacher and weirdly geocaching has elements of that. But it seemed to me that the ghost walk participants and the people engaged in commercial ghost hunts were engaged in an active project of re-enchanting the landscape. And then the paranormal investigators come along and just disenchant it right again. <laughs> That's a really interesting observation. I like that as a way of framing it. Jason Josephson Storm, he had this great book, The Myth of Disenchantment, right? And the idea that we've been telling ourselves the story that we're becoming disenchanted. And of course it isn't true, right? The very people who were writing about disenchantment, like Weber, for instance, were engaged in all kinds of new age occult things. Mm -hmm. And so he and others argue there's like a dialectic, right? Any move to disenchant often leads to one to re-enchant. And I, I think maybe that's the relationship that ghosts can act as both, right? Like you've got people walking through cities, you know, having, yeah, like re-seeing them, like a normal city center becomes a super haunted space. It's not just the high street. It's also where someone was hanged and now their ghost does whatever, well, at the same time, people are doing kind of explicit work struggling with that. You know, what's interesting is Isaac Newton, I know, gets a lot of blame and a lot of press about, you know, being one of the people who disenchanted the landscape. He was an alchemist. <laughs> <You know? laughs> he, he was engaged actively in sorcery. He was also a brilliant scientist, but he was engaged actively in sorcery. And even more recently, you get John Parsons, who's one of the founders of NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, who founded a sex cult along with L. Ron Hubbard. So yeah. even within individuals who are engaged in this sort of mechanistic explanation of the world, they themselves, as you point out, often are still involved in this enchanted world. It's so funny. And yet it's still something that at least some people really believe, right? That the world is going to become disenchanted. And, you know, like I think about this in terms of skeptics sometimes, like they're so upset about the fact that people believe in whatever it is they believe in. Mm -hmm. For the skeptics for whom the belief is the problem, I'm like, where do you think it's going to go? It's There's no sign that we're going to lose that. Like, if you want to critique the politics of what they're doing with that belief, that is absolutely legitimate. But it's not going to go anywhere. If it's not ghosts, it'll be something else. Right. Yeah. Well, it's, I know I, I was involved for a while with the more formalized skeptics movement in California. I was a very minor person. And <laughs> you talk to anybody who is actually well-placed, they won't know who the hell I am. But you know, I did have some involvement. And one of the things that uh, I always found frustrating was that people would look at very simple metrics and say, well, this is proof that people are becoming more rational. It's like, yeah, look at it in its context. A great example is they'd say, well, Scandinavian countries have, you know, higher rates of atheism, which proves that they're more rational. Yeah. And how many Scandinavians believe in elves? Exactly. Quite a lot. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know? It's one of those places where I think anthropology can capture so much more complexity than any kind of like, oh, look in, look in Norway, look at the statistics. It's yeah. like, okay, people can do lots of things. People can be contradictory and complicated. And belief isn't simple. Like maybe you walk around the space where you think an elf is, but you're like, oh, they're not really real. Like, there's so many moments of ambivalence and ambiguity and like everyone's everyday life. I mean, like I think of myself as someone who's fairly atheistic, but you know, like I have superstitions, all of those things. I would describe myself as an atheist and a materialist. I don't believe in spirits or spiritual energies or anything like that. But I remember years ago, I was working out in the Mojave Desert and walking to this one cabin. For some reason in the 1930s, a lot of turkey farms in the Mojave Desert, in the Western Mojave Desert. So we had to go and take a look at these cabins to try to determine how old they were, whether or not they might qualify as historic properties under federal and state law. They were abandoned. And I remember I was out there by myself and I was just creeped out. I was con- like, I not, I wasn't intellectually convinced something was out there watching me, but I felt it. And I often found myself thinking about that when I would read your um, descriptions of the mediums in that, you know, whether or not there's something there that doesn't change the fact that people will feel these things and that they have to try to make sense of it somehow. For me, it's easy enough to make sense of it as a trick of the mind, but for other people, other explanations might be easier for them to buy. I think the skeptics movement's really interesting. Like I, for a while I was like, I should study that, but Mm -hmm. I, I didn't have that in me. But yeah, like there's so much complicated ambiguity in all of us, right? We've all, I think we've, I, I've certainly had moments, some, like, not quite like your turkey farm experience, but like moments where like, as my ghost hunters would say, like the, the hair in the back of your neck is standing up. Mm-hmm. I don't dwell in them. Like, cause to me, it isn't that personally meaningful, but they happen. Yeah. yeah. Like there's so much ambiguity and kind of complexity out there in the world with respect to this. One of the things that I found really interesting was the uh, recent history that you discuss of ghost tourism, which again, I'm going to use it very broadly to encompass everybody from the investigators to the ghost walk participants, you note that it seemed to really take off in the early 2000s. And you cite the show Most Haunted in England as being a big influence on that. And certainly um, Ghost Hunters here in the US was a fairly large influence as well. But I'm wondering, I think about like the rise of the spiritualist movement, it really got a kick in the mid 19th century, when you had a series of social upheavals in Europe, you know, that you've got 1848 being the year of the little revolutions, you've got the Civil War in the US in the 1860s, all of which is pushing people to look for new explanations. And in some cases, make contact with people they know who have been killed in these massive upheavals. What do you think might have been going on in the early 2000s that led to this particular rise that you document? That's a really good question. I think it's a couple of competing factors. Some are really pragmatic and practical and you can kind of trace, and some I think are a little bit broader cultural forces. On the practical front, I think two things happened, right? The the emergence of um, Most Haunted as, as the genre of reality TV, haunted reality TV example. And I think along with that, and I think talking about this in 2021, it sounds really quaint what I'm gonna say, but like 2000-ish, that's like when social networking is really kind of getting underway, right? People have forums, people have message boards. These are in the days before Facebook, right? Like, but it's in a moment where you can have online communities and you can connect with people over your shared interests. That was actually really important in a lot of people's stories of how they became involved at a higher level that always had an interest for whatever reason. Maybe someone close to them died. Maybe they experienced their house as haunted when they were little, like whatever it was that had a longstanding interest but they felt alone in it. It was when they could connect with other people that they started to say, okay, okay, let's do something with it. 
And that isn't to say that there weren't already communities in the UK that are doing things mm -hmm. about this, but not necessarily ones those folks knew about, right? Like the Society for Psychical Research is alive and well. They've been operating continuously since the 19th century. The Ghost Club is alive and well, similarly. Parapsychology is in university programs, but the folks I'm writing about didn't know about those things. So for them, it was kind of discovering this, discovering that you could connect with people. So I think that at like a practical level is really, that was really important. At a broader cultural level, if we want to think about ghost hunting and paranormal investigating in the context of sort of a distrust of experts, a distrust of that, like there's a lot, there are a lot of rising forces, right? The anti-vax movement's getting legs, climate change denial is intensifying, like there's a lot of distrust of authority that's being circulated. Um, and I think that that factored into it as well. I can't overstate how much I think message boards played a role in this, like being able to connect with some other guy in your town and then together you get together and you're like, okay, we're doing this. And then finding just tons of other people and it growing. One thing I found myself wondering about that, I don't know your age, I'm going to be polite and not ask, but I was in my mid twenties in 2000. And I remember that there was this real sense of fear and uncertainty towards what is essentially an arbitrary turning of the calendar. Y2K became the big thing that everybody was focused on and it was going to be the end of the world. I don't know if you remember any of this or... Yeah, um, in 2000, I was 18. Okay. So one of the things that I often wondered about, and I don't know if you'd have an opinion on this, but it's just something I found myself wondering about was whether the proliferation of belief in the paranormal, I mean, it was building up before that. I mean, there's a reason why the X-Files was a wildly popular show in the late nineties, but I've often wondered if some of this might be a spillover effect from, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, the great disappointment of the world didn't end in the year 2000 and people had pent up all of this sort of paranormal-ish belief and it had to go somewhere. I think that's interesting. I mean, I know you know, like the catch line from the, the X-Files, right? The truth is out mm -hmm. there. People would, were obsessed with that phrase in the communities I worked in. They very fully believed that. And I think, I don't know if I've ever thought about it in terms of disappointment, but I don't think you're wrong. Like I think at least part of, you know, ghost hunting, paranormal investigating is the hope, the thrill that there's something richer under our noses, that the world as we know it isn't just it, that there's gotta be something more magical, something more exciting. Yeah, I think that's definitely part of it. Yeah, like I remember Y2K, right? Like that was a moment where people really expected something and it didn't happen. I remember watching the, uh, yeah, the grocery store shelves go empty and it was astounding. The fruits and vegetables were still there, but everything that would preserve for weeks or months was gone. I told my students this recently and my students are like 18 and they're like, seriously, like they had no cultural, like they had no awareness that Y2K was even a thing. Like they were like, really? People did that? I'm like, yeah, that was real. Yep. There were a lot of things like that that were coming to an end, like a lot of, you know, the end of the Cold War, the beginning of the war on terror, the idea of this war on an invisible invading other. I think huh. all of those things, like the world got kind of awful for folks. And yeah, I wouldn't have thought to put it in that context, but that that's interesting. Yeah, you, you've got these unseen forces you're searching for. And at the same time, you don't know who the terrorists are. It's a very like kind of huh. scary, enchanted moment, I think, historically. Well, that's interesting. And I think Britain especially... I mean, no country wants to be attacked, but if you look at British culture, there's like this anxiety of attack, you know, World War II, like, like we've never been invaded. Like there's a, like a real anxiety about kind of maintaining the boundaries and those were forces at play. Well, you even think about the fact that it wasn't that long ago that the IRA bombings were pretty common in London. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I think there are a whole bunch of things that were really kind of scary in the world for folks at that point, reasonably, right? Like rightfully scary. Yeah. I don't mean to make light of it. 
you know, like this particular emergence of interest in the ghostly, like it's maybe in part response to that, maybe in part like a way of making sense of it, making it manageable. I think all of those things could be at play. Yeah, I forget who it was, but there's some writer who uh, gets quoted by a podcaster named Blake Smith all the time, whose phrase was monsters are meaning making machines. And it seems like ghosts, in my experience, tend to serve the same. There are some stories which are just fun, creepy campfire stories. But a lot of the ones that seem to get legs seem to speak to worries, anxieties, or concepts of the time that they develop. Yeah, absolutely. If we're thinking about the 2000s and we want to think about it in terms of class anxieties, right? Globalization is afoot. The idea of if you're a working class person who does manual labor, what's going to be the future of your labor? Where is it going? Like, do you have control over it? I think all of those things kind of, yeah, they're all coming, they all intensified. They all kind of came to a fore in like like late 90s, early 2000s moment. One of the things I actually was uh, curious about at points in the book, you uh, make reference to the creation of history by the ghost hunters and things such as amateur genealogists and, you know, other non-experts become, you know, dipping their toes into what are often professional fields. And I was curious, what do you see as similarities between what ghost hunters are doing in the work of you know, the amateur genealogist history buffs, but also like history podcasters, people like Dan Carlin, Mike Duncan, Bruce Carlson, and so on? It's so intriguing to me, especially in the context of England, right? Like there's this great hobbyist tradition there where people really invest. Yeah, I think it's a connect. I think it's connected. I think this is a silly reference, but have you ever watched the TV show um, Detectorists? It's an English comedy. No. It's it's wonderful. It has three seasons. It's like this beautiful, gentle, lovely comedy about metal detectorists on a metal detectorist team. It's so good. I think it's on Netflix. And one of the things the show, like the show kind of presents as a theory, at least, is these people kind of, they're leaving lives that are interesting and, you know, like fulfilling, but they're also like, they want to have a bigger meaning. They want to be a bit part of something bigger. And for them to tech, like doing metal detectoring is part of it. They go out and find like a Roman coin and then somehow they're connected to these bigger historical forces beyond them. Doing this work of hobbying connects them to bigger worlds almost. I think that's the case for a number of these pursuits, right? That you're connect, like that you're you're doing something that's meaningful to you, meaningful to a community, and it connects you also to a bigger community. Like kind of literally and metaphorically, literally in the sense that you know you're actually in touch with other people. It builds community, but then metaphorically, like you're part of this grand historical narrative. You matter as someone uncovering the past. I think those things kind of come together. You know, the the connection to community that you uh, and you've brought that up several times during the course of this discussion. It seems like that is a huge part of a lot of kind of occult traditions, whether it be secret societies, things like the Masons and so on, or engagement and ghost hunting, or even I know when I go to professional conferences, it's like, okay, I'm in a room with the people who actually understand why I spend time digging things out of the dirt. And it seems like leaving alone any question of belief or non-belief, that would be a big motivator for people to get involved in a lot of this. You know, I think about, you know, a lot of the rhetoric around you know, bowling alone, the idea that people are increasingly disconnected from each other, and this is a way for them to get reconnected. Yeah, I absolutely. And I think in the context of like spirituality in England, there's been so much writing about what's the state of the church in England. And like, there's this hypothesis that believing without belonging, like that people have left the church and maybe they believe to one degree or another, but they're increasingly on their own about it. And it's led to like a lot of real interest from like religious studies scholars. I think these hobbies are places where people get to be with other people, like other like-minded people. For people I interviewed, 
so many of them talked about how amazing and meaningful it was in the early days to connect with someone else who was passionate about this. Like they'd felt like a weirdo forever. And all of a sudden they had three internet friends and they could, you know, talk about ghosts ad nauseum. And again, like it feels quaint to say that, right? Because we now we all live online, right? But for folks in that moment, it was really exciting, I think, to not feel weird about this, to say, okay, we can go out and do this together. Like, I think there was real excitement for them. Uh, one of the things that I found myself wondering when I read this is, I, I don't know if you're familiar with Joseph Laycock's work. He's great. In his book, Dangerous Games, which because I'm an astounding nerd, I play role-playing games and that's what the book's about. Well, the book's specifically about how the satanic panic affected public perception of it. One of the arguments that he makes in that book is kind of the central argument, I think, is that one of the reasons why these games faced a lot of pushback from religious authorities was because in creating a forum where people could think about a clearly fictional world, it could get people thinking about how other worlds that they envision, including the religious world, might likewise be fictional. In the book, you discuss how search for belief in ghosts can be a type of pilgrimage, which of course has clear parallels to religion. Did you see any evidence of pushback from religious authorities for that reason or for any reason at all? Not that I'm aware of. The church, like the Anglican church in England, I think is rightly worried about losing members at the time when I was doing my work, they were definitely introducing programs like the Alpha program, which was kind of geared, I think, towards trying to attract new members and kind of younger members and incorporating elements of almost more like American faith, like speaking in tongues and things like that. To my knowledge, none of them targeted ghost groups. The people who were angriest, in my experience, about the, the emergence of ghost groups were skeptics and parapsychologists and psychical researchers. Those two groups were quite aggravated, particularly psychical researchers and parapsychologists who saw like the emergence of all of these people running around in haunted houses as a real threat to their legitimacy as scholars. You know, like every once in a while, I'd come across someone who was a spiritualist and be like, oh, I don't know. I think that's a particularly useful way of approaching it. Like they weren't troubled, like they weren't worked up about it. So interestingly, it was the people who you'd think of as almost the opposite of religious authorities who were worked up over this. Very, right. Like if you read, um, if you go to like the Ghost Clubs magazine from the 2000s, almost monthly, they have an article kind of bemoaning the emergence of these like popular amateurs. I remember I was at a meeting for the Society for Psychical Research, and there was a presentation called Have the Lunatics Taken Over the Asylum? And it was sort of, which is a great <laughs> title. And they were so upset about the idea that spontaneous cases of, you know, hauntings and whatever were no longer being reported to the SPR, but were being reported instead to um, local groups who might not have the expertise or knowledge to do something with it. And I mean, they were also raising real ethical concerns. Like if people think their house is haunted and they're letting in a local group of ghost hunters, do they know what they're signing up for? Like, is that safe? And those are good questions. But like, there was a real panic about like, okay, our turf is being infringed upon by people who know less than we do. You see it still, like there's a pretty recently published book by one ghost club member still is kind of taking, like he's, he's worked up about it. One of the things that you uh, note was that when you get these different investigation groups that go in, they'll often build up a narrative. You give an example in the book of a bridge at the National Train Museum where somebody said, oh, I, I sense an evil man here. And then it built up a story about this rapist who either out of fear of being caught or out of some sense of shame killed themselves by jumping off the bridge. But it was clearly in your description, something that got built up fairly quickly by people all sort of piling on. 
You also note that when you get different groups investigating areas, they have almost no overlap in the spirits that they say they've encountered. But occasionally you will have one that kind of gets out to the greater consciousness. John Sage would probably be a good example of this. When you do have these things get out, what do other ghost hunting groups tend to make of it? I don't know how much they get out. Like, I think they have pretty narrow lives. I think I was a big pathway for them getting out. Like, I'd be like, oh, hey, do you know what they did with this? And people tended to be like, oh, that seems weird. We didn't get that. But who knows? Like, they, they weren't upset about it, but they also weren't, like, swayed by it. I think when you tell them to people who are involved in history in some more formal way, like, they're kind of like, oh, my goodness, that is... I'm trying to think about the rape bridge example. It was, it was such a, it was a really, that did happen quickly. I remember someone who was like a friend who was with me on that, who wasn't involved in the community was like, oh my God, I think he still talks about the rape bridge. Like he, he, he still brings it up to be like, I can't believe that they decided so quickly that it was a rape bridge. They had a rape bridge. So I think outside of the community, there's a degree of sort of surprise and sometimes like, you know, rightful skepticism, but there wasn't a lot of awareness of different groups as narratives. I was curious about that as I was reading it. And you did make it clear in the book that there wasn't a lot of cross-pollination, but every now and again, a particular idea would get out and other groups might encounter it. If I think back to it, like I think... The idea or the reputation of objects, like there's a certain place in Castle Keep in Newcastle that everyone thinks is very haunted. There's a certain mirror in another pub that people think, oh, that's the haunted one. But like the reasons behind why they think it and what they get through it are very different. I think that was the kind of knowledge I'd hear circulate the most. Oh yeah, I hear we have to go to this place in the castle or things sort of like that. Or like a Chillingham Castle, like the idea that there's a hanging tree that has special levels of haunting. So in the book, you make a argument that part of the motivation for ghost hunting is to create a view of the past that represents non-elites in contrast to you know, the popular but often incorrect assumption that professional scholars only focus on elites. But at the same time, the examples that you include in your book and the examples I've encountered through trying to gather ghost stories over the years, the past seems to be simultaneously romanticized. You know, This is the real England where people like us had authority and were in charge, you know, were at least the majority as perceived, but also it's very often demonized, you know, the lives they describe are lives of drudgery or terror. And so it seemed like there was this tension between romanticizing a past that people might think they'd fit better in, but at the same time, viewing that past as being a terrifying point in history. You're right. It's a, it's a real paradox my people were in the past and but it's also horrible i think like that paradox probably helps maybe with the kind of politicization that we're talking about with it right that like mm-hmm. it helps if you if you're going to see that vision of the past one where you belong but one where it was also horrible things are horrible now but they're also horrible then it kind of cements this feeling that you're marginalized in some way that you're like targeted by whomever, right? Um, I think it can contribute to that sense of sort of threatened identity. It doesn't matter who's in charge. People like me will always be on the short end of the stick. Yeah, like creates a really kind of inescapable situation, which is kind of grim. I can see how that could also in some ways be comforting though, because if you feel like you don't have power and you can create a past in which you also would not have had power, then it means you don't have to put effort into trying to change things. Yeah, I can think of, I mean, this is like, I I can talk about this guy, but it's a little bit of an outlier, but he was the only person I know who kind of conspiracy theorized around ghosts themselves. And one of his points with ghosts was that the English government would never want us to know if ghosts were real. 
And I was like, why? Why would that be the case? Because if ghosts were real, what would, why wouldn't we want to all just be ghosts and get out of their control? Like we could escape. We would all just kill ourselves and then we'd be ghosts and we'd be free. It was like a very unusual way of thinking about ghosts. That, okay. Yeah, like, kind of like a Marxist <laughs> critique, almost like why would we pay taxes if we could just die and be ghosts? Like was, right. was like, well, why indeed? I don't know what to make of that. <laughs> He's the only person I've ever heard say it. He's the only person. So I... I haven't been able to write about it, but it was like the strangest way of, you know, bringing ghosts, conspiracy theorizing and a marginalized political position all together. So there's two other things I'd like to get to before we concluded, if I can. One was, as I was reading your book, but also reading a lot of other materials, when you leave out the investigators who seem to try to abandon a lot of the narratives, the ghost hunters, the commercial ghost hunters and the ghost walk participants, and also people who do legend tripping seem to have these clear narratives that they're interacting with. They may or may not buy it entirely into the narratives, but there are clear narratives there. This is who the ghost is. This is what they do. And by going out and trying to interact with them, one thing that struck me was that people will bring a lot of their own baggage into that in the way that you've described it. And it really struck me as being very similar in some ways to how people who write fan fiction will kind of use this established characters in the world created by other authors as a way to play with concepts that they want to play with to try to correct what they think were mistakes made by the original author or in many cases, to try to work out their own, you know, internal struggles. Uh, there's been scholarship on fan fiction that's focused on how people will get into issues of gender identity, class identity, and so on in their writing. And it seemed like you had a similar sort of thing going on, at least with some of the people involved in the commercial side of ghost tourism. So this is so interesting. I I'm fascinated by fan fiction. Like I I'm super fascinated by it. I have never thought about them as connected. I don't, I kind of don't know what to make of it. I don't think you're wrong. I guess I wonder with the fan fiction, people are making really deliberate choices, really deliberate, really explicitly right. creative. I think the deliberateness feels different to me with pursuing ghosts. That makes sense. But I can see like the, the concept, like the product essentially being similar. I like, suppose another difference would be that even if you're engaging with a electronic forum, you're still engaging with the screen. Whereas if you're engaged in ghost tourism, you're probably around other people, you know, physically, which creates a very different social setting. True. Although I guess with fan fiction, right, people have betas and stuff. People read each other and edit. Oh. I'm intrigued by Brit picking within fan fiction, like people who want to write Harry Potter fan fiction, but they're American and they want to make sure they sound properly English. So they have an English person read it. Like I, <laughs> but yeah, like, so, but there is, there is an experiential thing that's different. And I think an agreement that the object like a different different status on the realness, not that not the fictional world. You, you know that the fiction you're writing is fiction. There's no question. Whereas the experience with the ghost is at least potentially real. Yeah, I think that's a, a big difference. And you can experience it, right? Like if I if I think John Sage is, you know, real and I want to see him, I can go up to chilling him. Like I can do that. I mean, maybe even that's not that simple, right? With Harry Potter, you can go to King's Cross, you can go to the platform, nine and three quarters. There are a lot of overlaps. Like there's definitely, there's a healthy world of overlap there. One other thing that uh, struck me, especially when you were discussing how the different groups conceive of ghosts and whether or not they think that a ghost is a knowable thing or simply a force acting upon them. I don't know if you're familiar with Paul Barber. He wrote a book. It's a bit of a trudge to get through, but it's really quite interesting called uh, Vampires, Burial, and Death, which looks at European and especially Eastern European vampire folklore. 
And one of the things that he discusses in that is that for a lot of the traditional folklore that people can get their hands on, especially things that were written down by people collecting folklore in the 19th century, such as the Grimm brothers, is that there often didn't seem to be a sharp divide between a vampire versus a revenant versus a witch versus a ghost versus a sorcerer versus a werewolf. And it seemed like for the ghost walk people, they had a fairly firm idea of what a ghost was. But once you got into the ghost hunts and especially with the investigators, it wasn't quite the same thing as what Paul Barber documented because he was saying, yeah, in the folklore, these things are all mixed up. But it seemed like a looking glass version where once people started investing more and really interrogating it, they seemed less certain and it created a similar ambiguity, even if it was the product of a different process. Yeah, there's like a lot of real slippage in what the term ghost means, but sort of the paranormal investigators, it's no longer a straightforward concept. If you bring up the word ghost, you sort of almost have to almost immediately issue a disclaimer, like, what do I mean by it? What's interesting is that they also have the word paranormal at their disposal, and they they use it almost, there's a little bit of interchangeability there, like they say paranormal because they want to open it up past ghost. But all of the work seems to kind of hinge on the idea of ghost, right? Even if they're moving into thinking about things like ESP, it's still always very focused on the ghost. I wonder if ghost is just a really good boundary object. Like it can move so nicely between different circles that it it, it adds to the cachet. It adds to the meaning, the meaningfulness of it. Well, it's like the term energy. In physics, energy means a specific thing, but you get outside of physics and people use energy to mean all kinds of things without ever acknowledging that they're using it to mean different types of things. Yes, exactly. And it's probably not accidental when things like that happen, that they're science-y words. I mean, I, I'm guilty of it. Like, I, I, I write about this. And I'm like, oh, we oh, all are. Yeah, it's, it's a hard word to escape. Like, oh, the energy in my class was like this today, or my energy's low. Um, yeah, like these words, I think especially ones that you can kind of trace to some kind of scientific or scientific, like there's a degree of legitimizing, right? Mm-hmm. Like when I'm doing something like saying the energy in my class felt good today, like there's, that is unquantifiable, right? Like how would I, what, what do I mean by that really? But it makes it seem a little bit more legitimate. It makes me seem less, I don't know, like I'm just making an ungrounded claim about my experience. Yeah, I think that definitely happens with the word energy. With paranormal, it's, it is interesting, right? Because paranormal can incorporate all kinds of things like Bigfoot, UFOs. They only ever mean it, use it to mean kind of ghostly things, though. Like it's, it's interesting. And we tend to exclude like religious things that really should fall in that category. But because they're part of religion, we tend to exclude them from that category. Yeah, absolutely. Like you can see that in sort of almost like the scholarship on the paranormal, right? Like it's place within religious studies is a little uneasy. Like there it's, mm-hmm. it's conversation. Like if you're writing about paranormal investigators, how much do you engage literature on Christianity? Like where do you, how and why do you do it? Um, it's, it's kind of funny. Like it's, it's a funny normalization of it. So is there anything that uh, we haven't touched on that you'd like to discuss? No, I mean, and this has been such a wonderful conversation. I, I mean, I, I'm still thinking about the fan fiction question. I'll tell you, I've, I've really enjoyed doing that. I've had good fortune. You are the third guest I've had on this show and everybody has been fantastic to talk to. So it's, it's been really fun to talk about this because I, I, like, I wrote the book a while ago. And so revisit, I'm like, oh, wow. If people are interested in discussing these uh, subjects with you, how would they reach you? Um, my email address is a good answer. It's mmh245 at nyu.edu. I'm also ostensibly on Twitter. My handle is anthroghost. I rarely tweet though. Thank you for coming onto the show. You've actually been a great guest. Thank you so much for talking. I've, I've really loved our conversation. Um, it was really- As have I. Yeah, thank you.